0: Welcome to the Footy Talk Society podcast with Stephen Caldwell. Passion and aggression are key components of the game, but elite footballers need as much skill controlling their emotions as they do controlling the ball. In this episode, Stevie shares incredible EPL anecdotes to explore how fighting and confrontation can both help and hinder the team.
1: The big story is obviously the one that everyone remembers where uh, Lee Boyer and Pierre and Dyer had their big tussle at St James's Park many, uh, many years ago, 2005, I think it was, Kevin, And uh, I, I just left Newcastle, to be honest. I think I was at Sunderland at the time, but I could just remember coming in the changing room after the game. Everyone was discussing it, everyone was saying what had happened at St James's Park, we had heard it on the radio. Obviously, in England, there's a there's a blackout during these games, at these periods, so nobody could see it until match of the day that night around 10.30, but everyone was just, the buzz around our stadium, wherever I was playing at the time, I think I was at home, can't quite remember, but I think I was at Stadium of Light, just a few, I couldn't have been actually, I must have been away from home because I don't play at home at the same time, but anyway, it was, it was a crazy time, it was all the talk of the changing room, regardless of how your game had went, Everyone wanted to know what happened between these two guys. And it does happen, but it doesn't normally happen to that extent when you see the two of them literally want to rip each other's head off on the field.
0: Yeah, were were you surprised? Like, as much as it must have been weird for the fans to see it, as a player, was it as surprising to you as it was to us?
1: Yeah, I think so, yeah. Certainly being you know, an opposing player or a a player from a different team, it was such a shock. Like I said, we couldn't wait to get to match a day to see what actually happened uh, that night. But, you know, I'm sure in the stadium there was just complete shock because you'll get these little incidents, you'll get guys screaming at each other, but but this was literally two men who had lost all control. Their, Their heads had gone, as we say in the game, and they were, like, at each other. And when you hear the stories, that's actually quite funny because you know, Boyer was was pissed off at Dyer for not passing him the, the ball. They had did it a couple of times before. And he sort of brought it up to him. And, he, you know, he's like, pass me the ball. He said, no. He said, why? He says, because you're shit. <laughs> so it was this insult that just stirred yeah. the first reaction. And Bo, Bo could, like, really lose it. Obviously, he was, he was quite a hothead, as we know from his past. Great guy, but he, he could be hotheaded. He was a teammate of mine before. So I know him pretty well and, and Bo just went for him and the two of them are rolling around and then the red cards came, which I think was a shock to a lot of players at the time, Kev. People didn't know that red cards were given to players in the same team fighting, but then we found that out pretty severely on that day for Newcastle and, and Shearer came in at the end. He was going absolutely crazy, just lambasting the, the, the two players, Kieran Dyer and Lee Boyer, for what they had did. And uh, by all accounts, Graham Soonis who was the manager at the time, Offered both them out for a fight. Well, if you want to fight, come fight me. And they weren't too keen to have a scrap with Graham. Soon as who would be, yeah.
0: Right. So would you say, would you say that that it was it common though also for players on the pitch, especially like that game was a bit out of hand at that point, right? It was three 0 yeah. I think. Have you ever seen where another where where a player wouldn't pass to another player on the pitch, which yeah, is just sort of ignore them?
1: It happens a lot, and it happens between strikers. Mm. Uh, It happens when strikers have these volatile relationships. I think, I'm a defender, but strikers are selfish guys, and they're trying to get their own goals record, and you'll find that there can be a lack of passing, and there can be some real hatred between strike partnerships. So uh, I've seen that loads where one striker feels he's been slighted, he's not been passed the ball. You know, in any squad... There's relationships, there's, they're good and they're bad and, you know, that'll come over onto the game and in training sometime. But I, I think the level of fight that happened at St. James's that day in 2005 was was really quite shocking. There's usually a sense of uh, decorum or, or um, basically awareness of where you are to say this is absolutely crazy, I'll take it inside. And I've seen many fights at half-times and at full-times after the game, but usually out in the field, one or both of the players in question keep it together enough just to get inside, and then it's it's brought back up then in the the sanctimony of the the closed changing room. Yeah. Um, You know, I had one myself where I was playing for Wigan against Bolton probably around about 2010-11, and it was a Premier League game. It was a tight game. Uh, We were to two-two, ten minutes to go, and we had this Paraguayan international called Antolin Alcaraz, and Antolin was was a fantastic player. He was a you know a, a big strong character, and he was he was quite stubborn, quite pig-headed. and I guess he was the Paraguayan equivalent to me because I was the same uh, in my own culture, and and I I sort of had to go at Antolin because I didn't like the position he was in, and whatever I said, however I insulted him, I still don't even know to this day because. To me, it was pretty normal between two British players on the field, the language that I used. A word or a phrase was just totally unacceptable for him. And he had gone and he came towards me and he wanted to get into it, wanted to have a real scrap about this this moment. And he came head to head and he gave me a little bit of headbutt. And and this was after Dyer and Boyer, remember. So, you know, we kind of were aware of what happened if two teammates fought at this point. And I was in shock. And I actually thought Howard Webb, who was a referee, a good friend of mine, Howard now worked uh, with him on television. Of course, he's, he's working with, with pro referees in North America. Howard was a ref and he came over and he wanted to calm the situation. But I was just concerned one or both of us were going to get sent off, although I'd done nothing really myself. So anyway, the incident, Howard dealt with it. He just kind of calmed him down and it wasn't too bad on the field. Game finishes 2-2. I am absolutely furious. I can't wait to get in that changing room to just have it with Alcaraz because, because of what he's done to me out there in front of 25,000 people. So, you know, I, I sort of come storming in, he's inside and I walk up to him and I'm pointing my finger in his face and I'm, I'm saying, if you ever do that to me again, there's a few more swear words involved in it, but I'm, I'm going at him and in fairness to him, he's like, let's go. So he starts running towards me. I start moving towards him. You know, five, six guys get in between. We're, we're throwing big haymakers over the top of people. We're, we're trying to get in the scrap. And, and everyone's just trying to defuse the situation. But this is what happens. That's what happens in, on football fields. That's what happens in changing rooms. It's, it's so important to us as professionals. We, we made up. We were, we were fine after that. But at that time, if they guys moved it the way, me and Antolin were going to roll around that changing room until it was solved. Right. And, uh, and, and so these, these fights that we see within the game are consistent. They're in training most weeks, especially teams with high pressure, high accountability. They're going to go at each other. There's going to be scraps. Some managers like it. Some managers mm. really detest it. But it's really the culture of your club that determines whether these will happen frequently or uh, or, or a little bit sporadically.
0: Yeah, and there is upside. You you know your time at Sunderland, where 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 yeah. you said your club was was very was very tight knit, but there, there was a ton of accountability.
1: Oh, crazy amounts of accountability. And again, I've just said that the manager plays into it, and we we had a man in Mick McCarthy who was no nonsense. You know, everyone that knows Mick knows that what you see with Mick is what you get. That's how he he goes about his life, and uh, and he's a fantastic guy to work for. But he creates this this uh, this friction and this uh, this winning mentality and this accountability that means that players are always going to be butting heads with each other. And he also recruits players that have that personality that will stand up to people and will not accept any shit. And so, the season that we were promoted in in two thousand and four two thousand and five when we won the championship was one of the best seasons of my life, but one of the most confrontational. And emotional seasons that you could go through as well, because every single halftime there was screaming, there was scrapping, there was pulling at each other, there was this unwavering accountability to get results. And it creates this 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 environment that's that's so intense that it's hard to kind of keep up because it takes so much energy out of you, but it also creates some real winners and some great moments and I regard it as one of the greatest seasons of my career because I knew that if I was making mistakes, Gary Breen, who was my centre-half partner, was going to be at me at half-time or after the game. And I was at Carol Robinson, who, who was ex-Vancouver Whitecaps manager, now managing in Australia. And me and him are still the best of mates. But nearly every single week, he'd be telling me, you're not doing your job. And I'd be saying, F you, I'm trying to... you know. So we're at each other and we're, we're challenging each other to be better. And luckily for us that season, it normally resulted in victories. And so we just kept going. And Mick would be in the background and and just allowing this to go. And one big story that I remember was we went to Watford, uh, Vicarage Road, and it was a Tuesday night, wintertime, dark, cold, rainy. We were up near the top of the table. Watford were about mid-table, I think. And we didn't play our best. We actually played pretty poorly. And we we got a 1-1 draw. And we came in at the end and uh, Mick was having a go at us and saying, you know, guys, it's not good enough And his way and screaming and shouting. Uh, terrible passing and terrible coordination. This was wrong. And I just stood up and I was only 24 at the time, remember, and I just said, well, that might just be the point that, that kind of does it for us come the end of the season. We know we never played well, but it was a big moment. And he looked at me and he said, what? And I thought, oh, shit. What have I done here? And I thought, I need to double down because this is what he wants, really, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said, it might be a big point, you know? Like, let's just accept that we didn't play our best and we got a point. And he just starts screaming at me and Mick and I are having this confrontation in the changing room. I was looking for my buddies to come and back me up, but everyone's, like, getting come further on. and further and back into the, the wall of the changing room to try and hide for this yeah. confrontation. And we had it out for a few minutes, and in the end, Mick's like, I'm the manager, you'll be quiet, and I just, you know, had the intelligence, thank God, to just kind of shut up at that point. And I was so panicked about the next day, Kev, I was coming into training, and I'm thinking, oh, Mick's not going to be happy with me, I'm going to get dropped at the weekend, and I should have just kept quiet. And I'll never forget, I see him in the corridor, 9 a.m., and, hi, Gaffer, and he says, how are you doing, Steve? You all right? You ready to get to work today? And... I knew it was just forgotten about. I knew yeah. that whatever happened in that changing room, in the heat of the moment during the game, would just be forgotten about, and we could move on. And, and And that's why I have so much admiration and respect for Mick. There was never any grudges. It was intense. It was accountable. There was fights all the time, but they were forgotten about. We moved forward, and we tried to mm-hmm. do the best for our football club.
0: It it speaks to the it it speaks to the maturity. It it sounds like of yeah. of the club.
1: Yeah. Maturing. And I wonder. Well, the trust that he gave in the group gave trust that, that's too. To yeah, here. this is all about this is how good leadership happens. It's when managers trust the players that they've they've brought together, and and that's what Mick did, and that's why he gave everybody a voice, and and that's why there would always be, uh, you know, the the sort of questioning of what someone was saying or thinking because everyone had a voice, so everyone felt right. that they were capable of challenging. Not so much Mick, because that was a one off because he was the boss and he was the manager, but challenging each other to be better. That's the whole point there. And
0: but you didn't have a on the Sunderland, you didn't have a leadership role in that club, did you? No, but
1: I was a leader. So it was right. it was coming, you know, and I joined Sunderland as, as a free transfer from Newcastle and I was twenty-four. And I looked up to Carol Robinson and Jeff Whitley and Gary Breen and Marcus Stewart. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys, but, you know, I, I was a leader and I was a guy who, who you know, sort of had a lot of accountability in what I did. I was a, a good professional and I was someone who expected the best in people. So it was the beginning of that, you know, and, and, and so, yeah, like it is a good point to say that because it wasn't like – I've seen it in some changing rooms where, you know, one or two guys have a voice, but in this changing room, everyone had a voice, everyone who was uh, – strong enough to, to speak up at the, the opportune moment. And so um, it, it taught me so much what it was going to take moving forward to actually lead because I could right. dip in and dip out of that leadership. I was learning it. I was I had some great role models, Mick, Gary Breen, uh, Marcus Stewart. You know, I had these guys as role models and I was learning when to open my gob and when to shut it. And so when I eventually got into marking the of leadership roles when I was club captains of teams, then I understood when it was important to basically bring harmony and quiet people down and when it was important to allow the thing just to blow up in the middle of the changing room because right. that's what you needed at that time.
0: So did you see a difference when you moved over to North America in terms of the maturity of the club's the intensity of the club Um, because that's not really part that overt confrontations out on the field is not really part of North American sports culture. No, you don't see it.
1: it. Yeah. It's different, isn't
0: it? You don't see it in hockey. You don't see it. You, You see it in basketball a little bit from the superstars. Yeah. LeBron James is willing to sort of look at a guy and say, that's not good enough. Yeah. But it's it's rare.
1: Yeah, it's it's different for sure in, in MLS. And, you know, MLS is a, a, a rapidly changing league and it's different since I came in 2013. But when I got over here, it was extremely diff- different from the environments of English Championship, English Premier League changing rooms. And so, again, what I always do when I go somewhere is I sit back and I observe... And I see what's uh, what's required, and I get to know people, and I build trust. And so, uh, I was immediately Darno Day was captain for a while. Then he left for Ukraine, and I was I was thrust into the position as, as team captain at Toronto FC. And I had these young guys: uh, Jonathan Azorios, Daniel Henrys, Louis Silvas, Ashton Morgans. Um, nucleus of that squad, young guys learning the game, who were just kind of. Again, like I was at Sunderland or at Newcastle, just understanding what good leadership was, and so the key for me was to allow these these lads to get to know me, to get to know what I was about, to understand them, to have a, a, a an emotional relationship with them as well as a, a professional one, and then when I started calling on them for more or for answers, you know, I could I could really um, really challenge them. Yeah. And it was at the right time. And and, and Daniil and I have a wonderful relationship. I now coach him with the Canadian national team. I've I've been his teammate. I've been his captain and I've I've we've stayed pretty close throughout the years because of that bond that we built. And it doesn't come easily. You, it takes time and it takes connection to get to that point. But once I got to a point where I, I can again I these guys trust. And again, you don't get trust because you played a hundred games in the Premier League or you had played you know, one things in England or anything like that, yeah, it doesn't matter to anybody. You gain trust by being respectful, getting to know people and showing them what you're all about. And so for me, when I came here, it was a bit of that. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, maybe a couple of higher profile ones would be, I was really pissed off one game when, um, it's crazy because this is what you do now when you get subbed, you go off at the far side, don't you? The nearest exit. But back then, you always came to the centre circle where the benches were and shook hands with the guy that came on. And and Jackson, God love him, Brazilian that we had play for us for a couple of years, got subbed in a game we were playing really poorly against DC United. And he threw his hands up to the then coach Ryan Nelson and walked off the far side. And I was furious um, because that's not how team spirit is built. That's not togetherness. You come and you... You wish the guy who's coming on for you all the best, no matter how pissed off you are with the coach and what decision he made. And so as Jackson trudged around, I was had this locked in my brain and we lose the game 1-0. We come in and I think Ryan Nelson's going to address this. I'm waiting on him right. bringing it up. He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't bring it up and he finishes his chat and I just stand up and I start going for Jackson. And say if you ever do that again... To any of your teammates, so he starts screaming back to me in Portuguese, and this big confrontation happens in the changing room again. But I can remember the shock in people's faces compared to the one maybe three or four years ago with Alcaraz, where everyone knew the situation, everyone grabs an arm or a, a leg of the, the two guys that are going for it and stops them from causing damage to each other, right? But this one was like shock and horror. And, and my good mate Bradley Orr, who's obviously scouser, played in England played with me a couple of clubs. Uh, Brad was with me there at Toronto at the time. So he, he was he was in the middle of it as well. He was aware of it. But this level of confrontation never really happened. But I, I thought it was important to recognise that that was not the done thing that it had to be brought up, that, you know, we had young guys, impressionable guys who were going to go on and have great careers. And I'm pleased to say that, you know, some of them have years left, but the Daniel Henrys and the Zorios and the Morgans and that, International football players need to know what's right or wrong, what's acceptable, and that's why that confrontation mm-hmm. was needed. Um, and and, and another right one in yeah. Toronto. Sorry, to interrupt, but another one that was high profile was Michael Bradley and I. We had, we had a, a big bust up after the game. We played Chivas USA, who who are now defunct, obviously, but we were winning three 0 So these things can happen in victories as well. And we almost lost a goal near the end. We needed a clean sheet. Uh, Michael was furious that, that as a defense, we never did, you know, what he was asking. And I just decided, no, this is what's happening. We need the clean sheet. So there was a difference in tactics and an opinion on the field. And we had a little scream at each other, but then we were professional enough to leave it and know that we would come inside and deal with it. And when we came inside, my view was to deal with it the next day because I know what we're both like and I knew that it would be, Button heads, and we probably were never going to concede and at that moment. It was just going to be an argument rather than a constructive discussion. But Michael wanted to have it, and we, we got into it. And we start screaming at each other and trying to explain our points of view. And it was, again, very respectful. Was, we were never close to blows or anything like that, yeah. but it was a real heated discussion that, unfortunately, some of the media had actually watched because they had came into the locker room after the game to, to do their interviews. Right, You know, this was a high-profile one between us. And and again, forgotten about the next day, dealt with, spoke about it. But at the time, these things need to happen. People need to see that this is very important to you and to us as a team because we want to win. And so this confrontational environment, these these footy fights that we're talking about, are there for a reason. And as long as they're constructive, as long as they're, they're kept under control, they're sort of meant to happen, and they're meant to make your team better
0: now that you also are behind the bench or on the bench, yeah, as they say the um do you guys have discussions in terms of the culture of of the club, how to motivate certain players when players I'm sure aren't uh performing to their potential, you know is is the pathway to motivation a lot of people talk about millennials and people being more sensitive now i'm not sure how much of that is actually true but the culture has has changed yeah and and the way you we talk with each other <clears throat> some of it's not tolerated like it used to so what have you noticed going behind the bench and 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 how has that changed what's your experience there
1: yeah well behind the bench it's a lot more <clears throat> subtle you have to be you have to be a lot more careful with how you bring it up and and in what environment, what situation, you know, do you, do you bring up, do you sort of go for a player within a team meeting where he's maybe going to be embarrassed, he's going to get defensive, it's not going to be constructive, um, or do you, are you subtle about it? Do you make sure you pick your time in and, and, you know, you use the, the sort of, Culture of the squad and the personality of the player to to know when the right time is to, to to make these changes that are that are ultimately to allow everyone to be better individually and collectively. So it's very different being a coach. You are much more of a mediator. You're much more of a you know a sort of strategic thinker and how you're trying to get long term success. And you've got to put your personal frustrations or your wants and. And needs at that time to decide for the greater group, group, uh, good of the team. Um, so, sort of to answer that, I, I think again, it's about timing and it's about understanding of the dynamic of a squad and understanding of the impact of an individual within that group. So, if there's someone, and it could be anyone, it could be the captain, it could be the most high profile player, it could be a, a, a guy who gets limited minutes, but if they're impacting, the health and wellness and the positivity of a group, then it needs to be addressed immediately, in my opinion. The the rot cannot set in and it cannot grow. And so for me, I would always attack that full on. That's because i am got red hair and I'm Scottish and I've got that fiery personality probably. But to me, it just needs dealt with and it needs sorted. And so, uh, thankfully, never had a problem like that within my coaching environment with Canada because of the magnificent culture that John Herdman has built already and is, is building and growing. Um, and so it's, it's never really came up, but there is dysfunctional teams and there's moments where you need to step in and you need to do something about it. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's the understanding of that, cave and the, the awareness uh, of what's needed at what time.
0: Yeah. And, and Canada right now is very young. It's a yeah. young squad, yeah. unbelievably young, which is exciting, but there could easily be a, a leadership sort of void or yeah. maybe even a leadership struggle because a guy like Davies might not be ready for it yet or, or even want it. He just wants yeah. to play, but no doubt guys are looking at him, right? And there's already established leaders there as well yeah so it, so it could it could definitely you know you know without the right culture it could definitely go sideways
1: yeah definitely right. and, and and so yeah. we build the team culture and we try and have everyone buy into the things that that, that we feel are important for sustained success and so yeah. yeah maybe we don't have that Roy Keane Tony Adams you know outstanding leader type individual who can who can uh you know kind of bring the whole group. It's maybe a little bit of uh, Sammy Piet, a bit Scott Arfield, A Hutchinson, yeah. Daniel Henry, Derek yeah. Cornelius. We we have these guys, Jonathan Azorio, who we expect to take on a leadership role within a group. But I don't know if we've got that one guy and some of them are still young. They might grow into it. Alfonso could be one of them. Uh, you know, Daniel's still pretty young. Can they grow into being that out and out leader or is it a shared experience? As long as we get success, it doesn't really matter. And, and maybe the modern way is to have more than one leader, to have right. four or five, to share it around, to make sure that the accountability comes from a, a group of people rather than one or two voices.
0: Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Thanks,
1: Stevie. Cheers, Kev.